Good evening, folks. Um, if you would, go ahead and open to two places. Uh, as you're getting to Ezekiel chapter 1, stop along the way in 2 Kings chapter 24. 2 Kings 24 gives us the context and background for the book of Ezekiel. So uh, let's start there. That's 2 Kings 24, starting in verse 8. We're going to go through verse 17. All right, 2 Kings 24, starting in verse 8. It says this, Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Nehushta, Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made as the Lord had foretold. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. And, he, and the chief men of the land he took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the metal workers, 1,000, all of them strong and fit for war. And the king of Babylon made Batania, Jehoiakim's uncle, king in his background, and changed his name to Zedekiah. This is the background for the book of Ezekiel as you flip now to Ezekiel chapter 1. Some, just some introductory things about Ezekiel that you learn in the very first verses of the book. He was a priest. Ezekiel was a priest during this again, first Babylonian attack on Jerusalem. And our book of Ezekiel begins five years after what we just read in 2 Kings. So Babylon comes and attacks Jerusalem, takes all of these captives, nearly everyone except for the poorest of the poor. They leave the city. It's not yet destroyed. And along with it, all the, 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 the king, the important people, the priest, everyone goes with them. So this includes Ezekiel. We learn here in the, the very first verse of Ezekiel that, that he is 30 years old. And it is the year that he, that which is the year he would have been installed as a priest in Jerusalem. We learn that from uh, the book of Numbers, that at 30, he would have been installed a priest. So this is our background. For five years already, the people of Israel have sat in ba Babylonian captivity. And to say, uh, to say it gently, it is not going well. The people have quickly turned from the Lord. They have quickly began quickly begun to worship the idols of, uh, of Babylon. They're not trusting in the one true king, Yahweh. So beginning 
in chapter one of Ezekiel, which we're going to spend a little bit of time here, Ezekiel receives this vision from God. So Ezekiel is, a, is 48 uh, chapters. It's a really big book. We're not going to be able to walk through each chapter even tonight. And so we're going to break it up really in, in three big chunks. We're going to break it up into chapters one through 11, which are, are kind of... Um, this long accusation, this long listing of offenses against Israel. Uh, Chapters uh, 12 through 33 then have to do with judgment that's going to come because of these accusations that uh, God is making against Israel. And then finally, 34 through the end of the book through um, 48, we see a glimpse of hope. So, so that's going to really be our outline there. It's, it's accusations against Israel. We're going to have uh, the second point is going to be judgment, and the third point will be hope. So let's, let's dive in here really and spend some time in, in chapter 1. The whole section of chapters 1, 2, 3 are Ezekiel's call and commissioning, and we, we see that happening over the course of the first three chapters. But something incredible happens in chapter 1. We see a vision or Ezekiel sees a vision and he relays it to us through the book of God himself appearing to him. Let's read um, uh, Ezekiel 1, maybe 26 through 28. It says this. This is um, the final section of what, of what Ezekiel sees. He says, above the expanse over their heads was the likeness of a throne in the human appearance fire and seated upon the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance and upward from what had the appearance of his waist I saw as it were gleaming metal like the appearance of fire enclosed all around and downward from what had the appearance of his waist I saw as it were the appearance of fire and there was brightness all around him like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the the appearance of brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. This is the final section here. This is the final verses of Ezekiel 1. And this is the picture that happens. Ezekiel sees God himself or the, the, the physical manifestation of the glory of God appear to him and bring about these visions. This is a huge, huge event. Earlier on, it tells us that um, before these verses that we read, it sounds very similar to what we've been reading in Revelation as we see the throne of God. In fact, there are four living creatures, each with four faces, one the face of a man, a face of an ox, a lion, and an eagle. And each creature has four wings, uh, and they sparkled like bronze under these creatures is a wheel within a wheel. Imagine like two wheels set in opposite directions so it it seeming can move in any direction. Above these creatures is a large expanse or you could think of that as a table. And these are the verses we read and above that table is this throne with the manifestation of the glory of God sitting upon it. The image that Ezekiel wants us to see here is that he is seeing God sitting on his throne, the glory of God has appeared and has a message for him. This is really similar to what we read in Exodus chapter 25, 
um, where it describes the creation of the Ark of the Covenant. You, won't, you don't need to, to flip there necessarily, but I'm gonna read the latter half of Exodus 25, or this is around, this is verses um, about 18 through 22. It says, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half of its breadth. You shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them. And on the two ends of the mercy seat, make one cherub on one end and one on the other end. Of, a, of one piece of the mercy seat shall, shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces to one another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy that I shall give on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark, you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that you are on, that are on the Ark of the Covenant, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So this is instructions to build the Ark of the Covenant being given to Moses. And God is saying, I am going to meet you, Israel, here. My glory, my presence will be here above the Ark of the Covenant. And yet Ezekiel sees in a vision, the glory of God appearing to him outside, not only outside of away from the Ark of the Covenant, outside of Jerusalem, outside of the city where his glory has dwelt in the temple. This is a major, major piece of significance that we'll come back to even in this sermon. But just know this, God's glory, even in chapter one of Ezekiel, isn't where it should be. It's not resting in the temple. It has left the temple and showed up in Babylon. And we should be asking, why? Well, the rest of the book really kind of answers that. And so moving a little more quickly through some of this book, chapters four and five of Ezekiel continue now to answer this question, why has God's glory left? Why is God's glory not where it should be in the temple? Well, chapters four and five, God tells Ezekiel to display a series of signs. These are, these are literal physical acts that Ezekiel should do to demonstrate what is going on. The first one is he sets up like a model. Think of like a, uh, like a model train set. You've got a little town and all that. Well, God tells Ezekiel to make a model that he builds out of a clay brick and he, he builds Jerusalem. And then he says, okay, now with your little model of Jerusalem, set up a siege all around it because this is coming. So he has this physical manifestation and people will come and ask, well, what are you doing? And then he's supposed to say that this is what's going to happen to Jerusalem. And at the coming to next act, he, he shaves off all of his hair and chops it up with the sword for a sign of the coming destruction. And uh, maybe the most significant physical act, one of them that Ezekiel has to do, he acts as a scapegoat for Israel. In chapter five, he is told he must lay on his side and he's tied up and for, he must lay there for over a year. And not only that, is he laying on his side for over a year? While he does that, he's to eat food that's cooked over human feces. It's disgusting. But this is what God commands Ezekiel to do. And it's a sign of the terrible food that the people are gonna have to eat as the siege of Jerusalem comes. These are not... Um, uh, these are all symbolic 
acts of a very literal and very real judgment that's coming towards Jerusalem. This is, um, again, we begin to get the picture of Ezekiel as he, as he demonstrates these acts of a very imminent judgment. A lot of people in Ezekiel's day would hear him and see him act in such a way and think, oh, this is way off. This isn't coming anytime soon. But no, Ezekiel made, made it clear and the Lord made it clear that these acts were coming soon. These judgments were coming soon. So we're continuing on here in this first section, this accusation against Israel. And, and even as all of this is happening through these first 11 chapters, Ezekiel's interweaving these physical acts of what's going on. He's interweaving this, his call and commissioning that you have in the beginning. And from uh, verse chapter six, really through the end of this first section, uh, chapter 11, Ezekiel's also acting as... Um, as an attorney, acting as someone who's building a case, maybe a detective who's trying to say, these are all the reasons why you deserve what is coming. This is what you have done and this is what, um, and why you deserve it. It gets really clear beginning in chapter eight, what Israel has done. So turning to chapter eight through chapter 11, Ezekiel receives this temple vision. This is one of two temple visions that Ezekiel receives over the course of the book. And in this first one, he's able to see as if very literally what is going on in Jerusalem inside the temple right now, and it is not good. It is, a, it is, it is literally what's happening as he looks in, but also metaphorically, symbolically, what's happening within all of Israel's hearts, whether they are still in Jerusalem or have been carried to Babylon. What they see is this, that all the people who have remained in Jerusalem have set up two large idols. One is in the temple, two are in the temple courtyard. And Ezekiel can see them worshiping this large, really kind of just massive idol. You see all the, the elders of Israel worshiping it. And then right next to that, just over, he sees all the women of Jerusalem worshiping an idol specifically of Babylon but it gets worse. It's not only in the courtyard of the temple. His vision continues into the, the inter parts of the temple. And there he can see more idols being worshiped. And as he sees all of this in his vision, the Lord's condemning it. It is, the, the Lord is, it's despicable. And so we zoom out. He no longer is seeing directly into the courtyard. He's no longer seeing specifically into the, the, the heart of the temple. But as, you, as we zoom out, one of the worst possible, worst imaginable things that Ezekiel could see is happening. He sees God on this royal throne. So you see yet again that same throne-like chariot. So you, again, you've got the cherubim who are with, with the four faces and the four wings. They've got these wheels within a wheel underneath them, this platform above it, the, the throne of God sitting above that and one who is in the likeness of a man sitting above that. This all happens in chapter 10. And the, this is what he sees. This royal throne of God 
leaves Jerusalem. It doesn't just leave the temple, but it, but it leaves Jerusalem altogether. And curiously, it, it, it travels east. Ezekiel's big on direction. You'll find as you're reading the, the book of Ezekiel, he, he mentions directions a lot. Um, and there's two really important things you need to know about the directions as you read in Ezekiel. One, east is the direction that Babylon is. So when something like God's glory, the physical manifestation of his glory is leaving Jerusalem and going to Babylon, well, that can't be good for Jerusalem or Babylon, really, when you think about it. Also, regularly you see Ezekiel mention whenever this chariot is involved or whenever he's talking of the physical manifestation of God's glory, that it can move in north, south, east, west. It can move any way that it wants, any way that it pleases. Um, The picture that we get here is that the Lord is not bound by anything. He can go anywhere and everywhere, do anything and everything that he desires to do. And all this comes just in, in talk of direction. Ezekiel wants us to understand that. So as we think about these directions, like think about it carefully because it shows up everywhere in Ezekiel. That kind of brings us to our, our second point, and we'll be a little bit slower here in this second point of judgment. We get, beginning in chapters 12 through 33, we get harsh, terrible depictions of judgment. It breaks up into three ways, and we'll slow down and talk about each one. The first is this, is the judgment of Israel. Oh, I should say before moving on that this chapter 11, it it really is a dividing line before we get to chapter 12. Chapter 11 is a dividing line in this book. You see, it, it begins and is mostly entirely about the judgment that is going to come from Israel's broken covenant, turning away from God, worshiping false idols, no longer remembering the Lord who made them. But you get a very, very small glimpse of of hope. It doesn't end there because while Israel's idolatry has driven God away from his temple, God does not abandon his people. He promises here in chapter 11 that he will save and keep a remnant and return to the land of Israel. And that remnant will return with new hearts that love him. And so, and so this, this chapter really is a dividing line. And that's why for the next several chapters, we only see judgment. From 12 to 33, all you see is judgment. But the book hasn't forgotten that. It does come back with a glimmer of hope here. However, if, if you're quick to read chapter 11 and you move on straight to chapter 12, you may easily forget that. Because as you go back and as you read Ezekiel, Chapters 12 through 33 are, are, are hard to read. Lots of judgment is coming. And again, this is not something that is far off, but something that comes soon for Jerusalem and Israel. So let's, let's walk through this. Uh, the first way that judgment comes is judgment specifically on Israel as a nation, on those people. This is chapters 12 through 24. You see this happen. If you'll flip uh, through this, you'll see that this whole section is, is viewed as there are worth many parables. There's a lot, a lot of parables going on here. There's some really prominent ones that are worth mentioning. If you 
flip quickly to chapter 15, you see Jerusalem described as a, as a useless vine or a burnt stick. Um, I'll, I'll just read the first couple of verses here. It says in 15 verse one, it says, and the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, how does the wood of the vine surpass any wood? The vine branch that is among the trees of the forest, is wood taken from it to make anything? Do people take a peg from it to hang any vessel on? Behold, it is given to the fire for fuel. When the fire has consumed both ends of it and the middle of it is charred, is it useful for anything? This is already, this is the first parable that God chooses to use to describe Israel. It's not like a sturdy piece of wood that you can craft and turn into some beautiful table, pulpit like this. You, you couldn't even really use it to, to hang a coat on. It is a useless vine, it says. And what is its only use but to be burnt, to destroy? The next one is just here in the next chapter, the next uh, prominent parable. Israel is described as a rebellious wife. Again, verse, uh, chapter 16, verse one says, and the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, make known to Jerusalem and her abominations and say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of land and of the land of the Canaanites. Your fathers was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. Uh, sorry, I lost my place. And as for your birth on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out to the open field for you abhorred. You were abhorred on the day that you were born. And this through trying to say, this is just the beginning of this person's life. And as it goes on through chapter 16, this unpitied person who was born without compassion goes on to show that becomes a rebellious wife who does not love her husband. In fact, it talks about God being the husband who takes this person out of nothing and gives her infinite, vast wealth and love and care and compassion, and yet she throws it all away. Ezekiel 16 is a, is a long passage, and, and Ezekiel uses every possible word he can think of to describe the desperate state that Israel was in, God's infinite mercy and grace and blessing that he gave, and then Israel's rejection there. The next prominent parable is in Ezekiel 19, where Israel is viewed as a lion that gets captured. And we won't go through that one. In Ezekiel 23 as well, it's viewed as two promiscuous sisters who are not faithful, again, to their husbands who, get, who, who have given them everything. It's very similar to chapter 16. All of these, this is the point of all of these parables. They're all demonstrations of Israel's rebellion and idolatry, which ultimately will result in their own ruin. God is not saying that what he is doing will result in their own ruin. These points are trying to say, you are doing this yourself and what you are doing will bring about ruin. And so in the, in the midst of all this, like I said other earlier, Ezekiel's acting as a lawyer. He's using these parables and interweaving facts of what they have done, how they have turned away from God. And he's building a case that they, they deserve a couple of things. One, that they deserve the destruction to come. 
There's this long section in the midst of this in 12 through 24, and it kind of comes up over and over again, or at least a couple of times, that even if the best people to have ever lived, and he names uh, Job, he names Daniel and Noah, he says, even if this is he were to come and plead on your behalf, God would not relent. Again, he says, this is imminent. He says, it is too late. All of this results in the judgment of Israel. But that's not all through, uh, it's not only through the judgment of Israel, but the latter half of this is also the judgment of the nations. Ezekiel shifts his, shifts his focus to the two main superpowers in the region. He talks of Egypt and he talks of Tyre that Israel has turned and is worshiping the idols of Egypt and Tyre. They've adopted the gods and they're, they're not worshiping the one true God. Even more, the leaders of these nations view themselves as God. And so God will bring about judgment on them too. And the, the picture that he gives is that God will use Babylon itself as the instrument of his judgment to destroy these other nations. The very final part of this judgment passage here is chapter 33. And it, it, is, it is dark, it is heavy. Um, and we kind of get a reprise, honestly, in chapter 33. It, and somehow, this, it, this, this messenger that comes with the worst possible news somehow feels lighter because it's not described in as much uh, darkness. This is what happens beginning in, um, in chapter 33, Verse 21, this is the worst possible news that ever could have come in the worst situation, the greatest disaster for the nation of Israel. 33, 21 says, in the 12th year of our exile, in the 10th month, on the fifth day of the month, a fugitive from Jerusalem came to me and said, the city has been struck down. Here in these verses, we learn that Jerusalem itself has fallen. All that Ezekiel has spent the last several years, and yes, these passages in these chapters span years. All that he has spent time warning against has come. Not, not only is, are they in exile, but their home, the promise that we find, the city of God has been destroyed. It is a dark place that we find ourselves in Ezekiel 33. But it's not where the book ends. In fact, from 34 to 48, we have a series of hopeful events. 34 through 48 uh, are marked by three major areas. One, we have hope for Israel, again, specifically. Then we have hope for the nations. That's in 38 and 39. And then in the final huge eight chapter section of the book, you have hope for all of creation. So quickly, let's go through these. Our hope for Israel, if you go through chapter 34, here is an incredibly important part for us to understand uh, what Ezekiel is trying to communicate, what God is trying to communicate, and what God plans to do. God promises a future new David, that is, a new king. This king is, is not like their old kings. He won't be one who is, uh, turns away from God, but he will be just and right, and he will rule forever. In chapter 36, we learned that this new Israel, who is ruled by this new king, will be transformed. God is going to remove their hard hearts, their hearts of stone, 
And he's going to give people new soft hearts. I will, I'm going to read, uh, this is Ezekiel 36, verse 26. And it says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and carefully obey my rules. Um, 28 as well says, you're, you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my, specifically, and I will be your God. This is hope for Israel, specifically. Uh, you, a very famous, really amazing uh, vision and story that happens here in the next chapter. I encourage you guys to go, to go read this whole chapter yourselves. But it's a metaphor. We have this vision, this valley of dry bones. Ezekiel is standing out on a plain and looks out and all he sees as far as he can see are skeletons, just dead skeletons, lifeless. And yet these are a representation of Israel. Again, God is, makes, makes it very clear that this is Israel. He says so specifically. And that, however, they are dead because they have broken their covenant with him. They've turned, they've worshiped idols. They haven't loved him. But God says he's gonna send his spirit. He's gonna send his breath and breathe on these bones and give us life. So you see God's breath coming across it and these skeletons begin to stand up and on their bones get muscle and skin. And next thing you know, you have living, breathing people there. It just reminds us of Genesis chapter two, where God himself breathes his spirit or breathes his breath into the life of Adam. It's him who gives lifeless humanity, both physical and spiritual life. God is renewing life here. Verses 38, or chapters 38, excuse me, and 39 are a hope for the nations. It can get complicated here. And honestly, I was kind of confused that as I was studying this for a while. But these chapters promise this, the hope for the nations is that God will finally defeat all the nations that are not his. All the people, all those who oppose him, God will defeat them. It'll sound really similar to what we've been studying on Sunday morning in Revelation. You see, there's this, we begin getting this picture of, of evil, personified here in, in Ezekiel, kind of the same way that happens in, he, he, uses, and he uses, Ezekiel does, he uses every possible literary element that he possibly can. We, he uses this image of this ruler, an ancient nation called Gog, G-O-G. You can read about that in Genesis 10. And itself, Gog allies itself with seven other nations from all four directions. Again, imagery, symbolism, Gog has allied himself with everything, everyone. Evil is everywhere. It is an image to represent all the nations that don't love him. Ezekiel uses the same um, description of directions to, to help us understand what's going on. He also uses a description for Gog that he used in Egypt and Tyre earlier in the book, trying to get a picture that this isn't one specific entity. We're not supposed to think of Gog or one any nation in general. We're supposed to think of Gog in chapter 38 and 39 being a representation of all, all the wicked nations against God. And this is, what, this is the hope that we have there. God will defeat it. In chapter 39, he sends an earthquake. He sends two fires and he strikes down Gog's 
uh, armies in the middle of the fields where they laid unburied for months. The message of these chapters is that God will defeat evil and that he will defeat all the evil that has ruined the world. Finally, the last section of our book is Ezekiel 40 through 48. It's a long, long section. And most of it is tied up in another vision of the temple. Remember, we had our first vision of the temple where we saw everything going wrong and the spirit of God, the physical glory manifestation of God leaving. Well, here, Ezekiel receives a tour of the temple. And in chapter 43, God is building this great grand temple all through chapters 40, 41, and 42. And in 43, God comes back to it. This temple that is far bigger, far grander than the one that was ever built. Listen to just these few verses in the beginning of 43. It says, Then the God of Israel led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city. And just like the vision I had seen by the Chabar Canal. And I fell on my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the spirit lifted me up and brought me to the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple. And he said, son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, or I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. We get this picture of God returning to his temple. And and the vision that we get, it's impossible that it would be another real physical temple. The, the image that he has, it, it doesn't even give descriptions of vertical space. So when we read of this temple, we shouldn't necessarily think of a real literal temple. God is speaking to something even much greater. Yes, his people are gonna return to Israel, but God wants to see a hope, not just for Israel, not just for the nations, but for all of creation. We see God returning and living with his creation. We see this more specifically in Ezekiel 47, and 48 here in the final chapters. In these chapters, out of the temple flow a small trickling stream. And yet without tributaries, without anything building it up, but the stream itself, it begins flowing faster and deeper. And this is symbolic of all new creation, a new Eden, if you will, because everywhere it flows, this river brings life. Read 40, uh, chapter 47, verse 12. It says, and on the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither nor their fruit fall, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. This final chapter of Ezekiel, it ends with a promise that this new land, this new city, it will be kept as an inheritance for all of God's people. The final words of the book are this, and the name of the city from that time on shall be, the Lord is there. And this is the great hope of Ezekiel, that yes, while God is coming soon and imminently to bring judgment, he saves a remnant of his people 
And, and not only that, but he doesn't, he does, he's not coming just to destroy, but to renew all things. There is hope for all creation. So some final application here, just for you and me. One, God really, really cares about what you worship. He will bring judgment quickly to those who do not turn to him. If your life is not trusting in Christ, if we are not trusting in the one who is now seated in heaven, if we are not trusting in Christ Jesus, the one risen king, God will bring judgment to us. Two, all people have hard hearts and we all need soft hearts given to us by God. The same one who brings judgment, Christ also brings life. He promises if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. He can and will give you a new heart if you turn to him and so do it. God is full of mercy and grace. And this is my last point of application. The very God who brings about judgment, no matter how far you go, no matter how far into exile you put yourself, the book of Ezekiel is about a God who leaves his own temple and goes into exile with you and rescues you. God left him, he left his temple in he left his temple in Jerusalem and he went east and entered Babylon. He had no obligation to do this. He didn't he was one to to do this. He went and he gave new hearts to his people. Yes, he punished the ones who would not turn to him and he punished Israel's oppressors, but he promised redemption for those who trust in him and promised to renew the whole earth. Our God is a loving and just God. He is a God of both judgment and hope. And that's the hope of Ezekiel. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this evening. Thank you for the book of Ezekiel. It can be hard and complicated to read at times. It can be overwhelming. But Lord, when we take a step back, we see that you are just, Lord, and you bring about judgment for sin, but you are so filled with hope and mercy and that you have promised to give us soft hearts that we could worship you. Lord, I pray that we would turn to you today, that we would turn away from our worthless idols, Lord, but we would trust you. In Christ's name, amen.